a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move. Down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 129 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all over the country and beyond. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app, And please follow the show on your favorite social media outlet. We record each episode from the world-famous Say the Damn Score studio here in my spare bedroom in Burnsville, Minnesota. And for the first time, that means we are now in the downstairs basement studio that we just built instead of upstairs in the room that was supposed to be uh, the baby's room. Uh, we talked about that last week. I kind of want to move on from those kind of updates here on this podcast. But we are here in the new Say the Damn Score studio and now hoping that it sounds good. We have moving blankets hung up on basically a jerry-rigged shower rod made out of PVC pipe and hung with bike hooks attached to the wall with drywall screws. And it seems to be working pretty well right now. There's a few things I still want to add to the studio. I need to get some curtains in here uh, for a little bit more sound dampening. But mostly I've been pretty happy with uh, my experimenting with the studio. And uh, it's going to be my home office and recording studio. I'm excited to finally have it done. It was a multiple month-long process, mostly because I procrastinated and had a lot going on, but it is now ready to launch, and we're recording here. As far as my sportscasting career, just like everyone else's sportscasting career this year, it continues to be chaotic. It's been very busy this year. I just added up all of the events that I've done. And it's as busy or busier than most seasons. It's just completely different sports than I'm used to doing. Usually it's uh, football, volleyball, a little bit of soccer. Uh, This year it's been swimming and diving, soccer, cross country, volleyball, and only two football games. So still plenty of reps just in contests that... I'm not used to covering as frequently, and that will probably help me long term. Certainly, I feel like I have a pretty good command on broadcasting swimming now, which who knows? It could open doors at networks in the future. That's how several people on this podcast have gotten jobs with uh, the likes of Westwood One. They start off with swimming coverage, and then they're a known commodity, and they get chances in other sports. Uh, In Minnesota, uh, we've shut down high school sports again for the moment. Uh, We got through most of the fall season, missed a little bit of our volleyball schedule as far as my streaming business, and we missed postseason football and volleyball potentially. But uh, hopefully we'll be back in early January, but there will be no broadcasting 
uh, of high school sports in the state of Minnesota until at least December 18th. And just with the conversations I've had with people in the know, I would be shocked to see anything until 2021 in the new year, if not later. So I am certainly hoping for the best in this situation. It's been really hard operating a business when you don't know you know, what you have to sell, when you're going to have games, when they're going to get taken away. We're getting the best numbers of people watching it that we'll probably ever get, but it's just been very difficult getting sponsors because uh, it's hard getting people to prepay for a product that I can't promise is going to be there later. So um, that's been the challenge throughout this year, and I don't think it's going to change until we have a vaccine out there, which hopefully is sooner or later. But at this point, it's just plan for the worst and hope for the best. It's the only thing that that we can do in our situation as broadcasters, or in my case, as a small business owner related to broadcasting. So there is my update. Uh, we didn't do anything for Thanksgiving, as this is being released on Black Friday. If you're listening on time, me and my wife stayed at home. Uh, trying to be responsible, did not have anyone over. We chatted with our families via Skype and ordered takeout Italian because neither one of us honestly liked turkey all that much. So hot take right there. This is one of the last episodes that is going to be a guest host before I get back into it. I just sent out my first round of emails to broadcasters for me to start interviewing them again uh, with the challenges with the death of our son and his sickness leading up to that. And it's just been too hard to get podcasts recorded, but the world keeps spinning whether we like it or not. So I am going to start recording episodes again soon. But today, uh, again, is another fill-in broadcaster, a good friend of mine who has sat with me through many uh, brewery beers where I complained about uh, the broadcasting situation this year and kind of talked about the toughness of the situation that I was going through uh, with our baby Maverick. And he has been there for me, and I appreciate it. One of the things I said to him is I'd like to have a soccer announcer on sometime in the future when I bring the podcast back. And he goes, how about I just do it for you since you're doing guest hosts or something along that lines. And I said, you know what? That would be a great idea. So he was able to connect with Callum Williams, who is uh, the broadcaster for the Minnesota United here in the Twin Cities, an excellent broadcaster for the top professional soccer league in America. And we are all really fortunate to be able to hear that conversation. But without further ado, here's Bill Hupp, freelance broadcaster here in Minnesota, as he visits with Callum Williams of the Minnesota United. Welcome to another episode of the Say the Damn Score podcast. My name is Bill Hupp. I'm a part-time sportscaster at the Twin Cities, coming on as a substitute this week for my good friend, Logan Anderson. Our guest on today's episode is Callum Williams, the voice of Minnesota United FC on Fox Sports North. Callum, you have the distinct honor of being our first soccer, soccer commentator on the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, Bill, thanks for having me. And uh, first soccer person, no pressure then. Looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, no no pressure implied. Um, 
growing up, I'm curious, uh, uh, believe you're from the Midlands area of, of um, England. Uh, were you one of those kids that called games off the TV into a, a tape recorder? When did the broadcasting bug first bite you? I always thought I was going to be a professional player and then got a couple of injuries uh, accompanied by the fact that I realized I was nowhere near good enough. Um, and then so I sort of started to wonder, right, well, what else can I do? I want to stay in football. I, I want to be involved in soccer as much as possible. And, um, you know, I thought about going into coaching. I had my uh, level one FA qualification, which means not a lot to a lot of people listen to this probably. But, um, you know, it, it's to the point where uh, if I wanted to, I could go and coach. But um, I thought that was the, the route I was going to go down at one stage. Um, and then I... By chance, my father knew somebody at the radio station in Birmingham, a station that at the time was called BRNB. I believe it's free radio now. And um, I got a, a chance to go and, and shadow, and I got a chance to go and, and see how everything really worked in the broadcasting type, um, in the broadcasting world and broadcasting realm. I'd also thought about being a written journalist as well and went to shadow people at the Daily Mail. And, and it was you know something that I was really interested in. But as soon as I spent the first day at the radio station, I was instantly hooked. And I thought to myself, right, this is something I want to do. And um, rather fortuitously, that day, um, they were shorthanded, the radio station were. And as I said, I was only into shadow and see how things worked. But once I heard the commentators on the radio and, and I saw... Um, you know, the, the production desk and how it worked and all the intricacies that it took to get a radio broadcast live on the air. Um, I was hooked instantly. And it, it, from that moment, I was like, this is what I want to do for sure. Um, and as I said, fortuitously, they, they were short number that day for whatever reason. And I was able to help out with a few different things. And I will never forget, I was sitting behind the producer's chair and there was a... Uh, a centre-forward who scored for Portsmouth in the Premier League at that time. And his name was Benjani Murumwari. Um, ended up going to Manchester City and, and a couple of other clubs in England. And um, uh, he was relatively new to the Premier League at that stage. So my producer had no idea who it was. And he turned to me and said, any idea? And I, fortunately enough for me, being the, the spry and eager 16-year-old that I was, or maybe I was in 15, then I can't remember, I was able to say, oh, yes, actually, it's Benjani Moramwari. He signed for this amount from Marseille. He's scored this many goals. He's a Zimbabwe international and such and such and such. And the producer turned to me and said, well, would you like a job here? And I said, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, um, the job was in inverted commas because it was essentially, it was I, I never really got paid much at all really but it was a way into the industry um and that's how it all started for me really was um was Benjani Muramwari scoring so I guess I should thank uh, thank the the centre forward for for doing the business then and um yeah you know I guess they say the rest is history not the easiest name to, to just pull out of your uh, hat either <laughs> right there but and that you know you talk about with broadcasting taking advantage of your opportunities when they come and, and clearly you did that um in in that instance what about broadcasting? Because you say you, you went and you experienced it, you shadowed and you knew sort of instantly, yeah, right, this is for me. What about it appealed to you right off the bat? I think just the energy, the buzz, and the complete and utter thrill that it was just to be involved in the production. And this was only on the production side at this point, remember, I'd not even thought about 
getting myself on the air. As I said, I was, I, I'm fairly convinced I was, I was either late into my 15th year or, or I was, I, I just turned 16. It was one of the two, you know? Um, and I, I just thought to myself, you know, you get paid for this. This, this is incredible. You know, it's, as, as I was hearing the commentator talk about different things and whatnot and, hearing the producer giving scores to him during the commentary and, um, and all that kind of stuff. You know, the, the commentator who, who, who I worked under um, was a very well-known commentator in Birmingham, an individual called Tom Ross, who never really gave me a major opportunity, but he certainly allowed me in the door. And the, the producer was a chap called Cozy Powell, who um, uh, I, I owe a tremendous amount of debt to for giving me the original opportunity to, to get into the industry. And, um, you know, I, I just, I was drawn to the idea of you get to talk about football for a living. How on earth is this a possibility? You know, like, of course I was aware of it before, but the actual concept of it, I thought to myself that this is unbelievable, you know? So um, it, it became apparent very quickly. I remember getting the the bus back from the, the downtown area of, of Birmingham, the city where I'm from, um, back home. And, you know, obviously, um, full of energy because of what I just experienced, but also because I, I'd been asked if I wanted to come back. And um, it, it, it was amazing to feel that way. And going back, I, I was full of stories from my mom and dad. And my, my dad in particular, not, not that my mom wasn't, but my dad was particularly enthusiastic about me chasing this because he knew how much I love football. They both know how much I, I love football. Um, and... It, it, it seemed as though it was the right fit for me because it was all I did. I, I, look, I'll be totally honest. I, I wasn't great, Bill. I wasn't great at school. Uh, not at all. I, I didn't enjoy school as much as I probably should have done. I enjoyed the camaraderie and, and talking with friends and playing football in the playground and the play yard. But um, in terms of actually sitting down academically, <laughs> I was completely useless, if I've been totally honest. And, um, you know, so I kind of thought to myself, well, this might be the path for me. And, Eventually, what that led to was what I would tend to do is on a, on a Saturday, I would coach in the morning and I would earn my 10 or 15 pounds for coaching for two hours. Uh, and I'm talking coaching, you know, uh, anywhere from five to 10 year olds. You know, it was really enjoyable. And um, I would use that money then. I would get home. I would use the money because I wouldn't get into the studio in time. I, th- I think I finished it. I finished coaching at 12 or 1230. I had to be in the studio at 1.30, I believe, for the three o'clock kickoffs. So I would use that money that I'd earned to then get a taxi into, uh, into the radio station to essentially work for free. And that was the thing that a lot of people, especially friends back home back in the day, gave me a lot of, um, not abuse, but certainly they, um, they made fun for sure of the fact that I was working for free. But I never saw it like that, to be honest, Bill. I always saw it as... It was me getting on the pathway to long-term success because I knew that's what I had to do to get in. And anybody trying to get into the industry, I would always encourage to go and shadow and, and try and get in and offer yourself um, up for, for whatever the sport is. Make yourself available, you know. And um, fortunately, as I said, that, that led to, to opportunities. I, I did that for about two years. Um, and then I ended up going to a smaller radio station called Beacon Radio. Again, just sort of emailing around, trying to, to see what, what was the lay of the land, if there was any opportunities. As I said, I was still at home. I hadn't earned a lot of money at all. And I just wanted the opportunity to get on the air. I felt as though I had enough experience. I'd been in the production world for about two, two and a half years. And um, fortunately, as I said, this smaller radio station in the neighbouring city of Wolverhampton uh, 
um, had a, a situation where they needed a reporter, not a commentator, a reporter. And there was no money. I wasn't going to be paid. Um, they would sort of, maybe from time to time, pay my expenses. <laughs> but um, essentially what it was, it was, it was an opportunity to follow a team called AFC Telford United up and down the country. Um, and from time to time, report on the football league team, which was Shrewsbury Town. And um, uh, it was a great opportunity. Um, a, a lad called Stu Haycock, who, who, again, I owe so much to uh, for giving me the original on-air opportunity. And I, I learned under a, a veteran commentator called George Andrews, who's still knocking around in the West Midlands now, I believe, um, and became very close with them. And I had, I believe it was about a year, 18 months or so working there. Um, and, and it was great. It was such a wonderful experience. And I'll never forget the first time when Stu Haycock in my ear said Mike live. I was away. The very first game I ever reported on was Telford away to a team called Gainsborough Trinity, which um, is up in the northern reaches of England. And um, I, I just remember, you know, waffling through a, a, an opening report and getting myself through it. And I'm sure if I listened back to it now, I, I, I'd cringe. But the producer just said to me, yeah, you know, well done. Brilliant. Your, your first live football report will come to you, you know, in 20 minutes or so, because the way it worked then is the main commentator would be doing the Shrewsbury game and he'd come to me for updates on Telford. And, um, you know, it was great. It was, it was such invaluable experience. And, um, you know, as I said, I did it for about 18 months or so. And, and little did I know um, at that stage, because the area where I was broadcasting to was an area in the UK called Shropshire. And it was an area that, that I still quite, um, you know, have, have an affection for, um, for obvious reasons. And, um, Little did I know that there was there was a uh, there was a couple of people listening from the BBC, and I was eighteen or nineteen at this stage, and you know I was consistently sending out emails trying to get a break, trying trying to get myself properly into the industry, you know, and um, because I still wasn't full time, I was sort of semi working with my dad in the week. My, my dad had his own graphics design business, and he did a lot of the photography for him, and it was a route I thought I was going to go down actually at, at some stage, um, if the football thing didn't work out, because I quite enjoy the artistic nature of photography um and so i would earn you know he'd pay me as a junior i'd earn 60 65 pounds or whatever and then i'd go off and, and do my football stuff at the weekend and get paid 20 quid or 40 50 quid whatever it was you know and um just sort of get by really and um you know as i said uh, i didn't realize that there were people at the bbc that were that were listening um and then as i said at, at 19 i got asked to uh to go and join the, the BBC training programme, which was called BBC Blast at the time. It was for young sports reporters who wanted to forge out the career at the BBC. And um, so that's what I did. And in the meantime, um, I, I made myself a little more available and, and a little more different. And I was emailing other producers around and, um, you know, making use of the contacts that I'd gotten because contacts are, are unbelievably huge in this industry. Um, and I'd gotten myself a gig at BBC Radio Sheffield um, covering Chesterfield Football Club. <laughs> and Chesterfield were in League Two at the time. So it worked out in the end because what I ended up doing was for, for, a, for about six months or so, I was working at BBC Radio Shropshire in the week. And then at the weekend, I was covering football for BBC Radio Sheffield. And for the most part, it was it was Chesterfield. But there were a couple of other trips to, you know, Rotherham and Doncaster and Sheffield Wednesday and all this kind of stuff, you know. And um, it, it was really good. And I... And I Really got to learn a lot at the BBC. Um, believe it or not, the editor, the producer there at Radio Shropshire was called James Bond. Um, tremendous individual who, who I, I learned a lot from. Him and Nick Southall, who I believe are still still there. Um, tremendous individuals. 
And then the the one where I really started to think about commentary, because, again, I hadn't done much commentary. I'd done one or two games for Beacon Radio. Um, and um, at, at that stage, it was only when I sort of started really thinking about commentary. And um, I got uh, I got a chance. The the individual, uh, the lad who ran the station, the sports side of the station, Paul Walker, um, wonderful individual, tremendous commentator, is now the main football league commentator in the UK, gave me a chance um, alongside a, a chap called Steve Crossman, who um, is now doing BBC Five Live stuff. And, um, yeah, it, it, it was a great opportunity. And, um, you know, I, I learned so much of the BBC. You know, you, you don't realise how much goes into a broadcast, and particularly going into a, a football radio commentary. I, I learned so much. And, um, you know, because of that opportunity, I was then able to go and freelance around at BBC uh, the BBC in London as well, which I learned so much from there. The producer, Pete Stevens, gave me an opportunity and it was it was great. I, I just really had a, a fabulous time in, in my youth now, you know, now that I look back on it, Bill, you know, it, it was a struggle at times financially, but it, it's something that everybody has to go through to get into the industry. There's no easy pathway into it. Um, my path is, I'm sure, very different to a lot of other people, having not done the university thing and everything. But, um, you know, it was... Um, it, it was something that I'll, I'll often look back on with, with particular fond memories for sure. You know, it's uh, your experience really sort of highlights the fact that even though you didn't take the classic university route, like some people in this country would in America would going to a Syracuse or a Missouri or a traditional broadcast school, very often it seems like in the journalism route, it really is kind of a learn by doing job. And that, you know, having that sort of boots on the ground experience can be as invaluable as going to school. Is that is that what you found? I in mean, your case? maybe I'm, I'm being slightly biased here. Um, and um, forgive me if I am. I am not suggesting people shouldn't go to university because that's that's ludicrous to suggest, and particularly in this country. But I would always say to people trying to get into the industry, if you're going to go that way, don't just do that. Go and make yourself available. Go and, and speak to local radio editors and try and get yourself involved in the sports scene in any way you can, whether it's, you know, uh, even, if, even if it's on the television side, get yourself involved in the television truck, whether you're, you know, researching for the commentator or for the graphics person, you know, whether you're making the best cup of coffee in your life, it doesn't matter. Just get yourself in the door because when you're in the door, instantly you are more a part of the thought process. Um, and I found that experience um, to, to be invaluable. Um, and I've got a lot of friends who, who not, not a lot, but I've got a handful of friends in the UK who, who aren't involved in, in the industry who wanted to be. And they went and did the university route and um, didn't seem particularly thrilled about the idea of working for free or, or not a lot of money. Um, whereas I said to you before, it, it never really um, occurred to me that that was the case because I was convinced that it would eventually lead to something, which it obviously did. Um, but I would always say, you know, you, you can you can be told all sorts of different things when you're sitting down in a lecture or, or having to to do something in a classroom or whatever, nothing will ever replace the unscripted raw emotion of live experience. Nothing will ever replace that. Um, and, and like I said, it, it's, it's put me in good stead. And I, somebody asked me recently, actually, do I regret not going to university? And I have absolutely no regrets whatsoever because I, I don't think I would be in the situation I am today had I have gone. Now, I know that's a rarity because <laughs> a lot of people, as you quite rightly say, go to, you know, proper um 
pinpoint and, and experienced broadcasting schools for said reason, um, which is fine. And as I said, everybody has a different way of doing things. Um, mine just happens to be exceedingly different to the way that most people have done it, particularly in this country. You know, you spoke to the fact that you were a reporter and uh, hosted a little bit and also have done commentating. Um, there's a lot of young broadcasters that listen to this podcast. Talk about the versatility or how important versatility is in the job market as you're, as you're learning to become a broadcaster and looking for those opportunities. It's extremely important, Bill, because you never know when you're going to get that opportunity for the, for the break that you're looking for. And you may not necessarily have that break in the sport that you're familiar with or in the role that you want as well. For example, the, the best example of this really, Bill, is, is a chap I'm sure you and, and the listener is familiar with, Arlo White. Arlo um, got his big break doing cricket. And Arlo is a traditional football commentator, but he, he likes his cricket, as, as most of us Brits do. Um, and, and that's how he got his big break on national radio, uh, moving up from, from the regional radio side of things. Um, I, I would suggest you not pigeonhole yourself by doing one sport, but I'm, I'm also of the opinion that you have to specialise in something as well. Um, so it, it, it's an interesting balance to have there. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, purely soccer. That is what I do. That's my bread and butter. But I make myself a little more versatile in the sense that I can present, I can host, I can also report if I, if I need to. Um, but people know the best iteration of me is as a commentator. But I, I can host, I can report and I can do other things. I could even, I could even give um, producing on the radio side uh, of things if I needed to a go as well. I haven't done it for many years, but I'm sure I could if you give me a, a couple of hours for sure. Um, so it, it just, it depends on what people want to do. But I would always suggest be as versatile as you can, know as many sports as you can, understand that you may not get the opportunity that you want straight away, and that's okay. It's something that I struggled with at the start, Bill, was all I wanted to do was be a football commentator. It's all I wanted to do. Um, and it didn't become realistic to me until I'd had the opportunity at Beacon Radio. And, and even then, I, as I said earlier on, I still didn't think about it long term because I thought, right, well, that was good. That's another string to the bow. Um, it was until I got to the BBC and I really started to have some some proper feedback and you, you could call it training, I guess. Um, that's when I started to really think, OK, football commentary is what I want to do, which is great. Um, I've now got to learn about it because right now I'm a reporter, which is fine. Um, and as I said, it, it certainly um, it prepared me for, for opportunities later on in life as well, still being able to report. So... As you're insinuating, and as I've said already several times, Bill, I think it's important to be as versatile as you can because you never know when that opportunity is going to come or what it's going to look like. This is perhaps a little inside baseball, to use a term, but what did you find were the differences between, or how would you characterize the differences between covering non-league football versus um, the Premier League? What, what's the difference in, um, in how one approaches that kind of coverage? First and foremost, the facilities are obviously much better in the Premier League. Um, believe me, when you go and cover a game at Aston Villa, for example, the uh, the press box is, is um, much more welcoming than 
it is at uh, Hereford United or at Grimsby Town or something, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> believe me, as are the press boxes and the press meals and everything, you know, so I, I would say there's, there's, there's an element of comfort when it comes to the Premier League, because also as well, you're probably more familiar with the Premier League as well, regardless of the team you support in England, because it, you are surrounded by it in the UK, there's, wherever you turn, there's a, there's a, a Premier League player on, on a, a poster walking down the street. You're, you're probably turning on the radio and, and people are talking about the Premier League. You turn on to sports channels in England. It's all about the Premier League for the most part. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of football league talk as well, but it's, it's primarily the Premier League. Um, so there comes a comfort with it when you're covering the Premier League, for sure. But I must admit, I, I do... It's funny because I was talking about this with an old friend of mine um, about two or three months ago. I do miss the sort of rough and tumble of the lower leagues of English football as well, because sometimes you would turn up to these football stadiums in the middle of absolutely nowhere in England, and you wouldn't even know if your radio line was going to work. And you would have to say, right, well, OK, I've got another cable here. I remember doing a game at Torquay United many, many moons ago. And because I was with the BBC, my, uh, my what we call an ISDN line, it's essentially the radio line that goes into the radio station, uh, the connection, that was working no problem. But the chap from the commercial radio station had a real issue with it. Um, and so we had to, I tried to help as best as I could. And, um, you know, then ended up, we, we ended up getting him set up on what's called a Comrex, which is essentially a, a phone line that goes into the radio station. Not, it doesn't sound like you're on the phone, but it's essentially a phone line that feeds into the radio station. And he was okay. And we had several issues that year trying to get um, the commercial radio station set up. I remember back in, it was 20. 20, 2008, I think it was, 2009. And, um, yeah, there was a lot of issues. There was a lot of issues. But it, it was just, you know, one of those things where you just dealt with it, you know, and you didn't expect any sort of substance in the sense of, you know, um, a hot meal or anything, you know. It, it's very, very different to the Premier League. And even here now in Major League Soccer, the, the press facilities are, are absolutely world-class. Um, but I do miss a little bit of that, you know, turning up and, you find out the press room is a little porter cabin with, you know, a, a little coffee machine in the corner. And once that's done, well, you, your luck's out, you know, and there might be a little pie in the corner or something. And once they're gone, they're gone, you know. So, but the, the one thing I, I miss more than anything from an English football point of view and the lower leagues is the sense of community. And when you go into these smaller stadiums around the country, you, you do realise in these little towns somewhere in the UK, um, you realise how much the football club means to the community. It's not just a football club because, you know, you find out a lot of people actually work at the football club who live in the village and the income of the club actually means a lot to the town, you know. So um, there's there's not that element of romanticism in the Premier League anymore because it's become a, a global brand. Um, and not to say that romance is completely dead with the Premier League, but um, I don't think it means as much compared to what I've just described and, and the local teams in the local market, you know, so, but it was good. Um, I, I just, uh, I, I have fond memories of covering the lower leagues of English football. And, and one quick story, Bill, I, I remember one of the craziest times I've ever had. This was before I joined the BBC. Uh, I was reporting on, um, reporting on Shrewsbury town away at Grimsby town. Um, in 2007, I think it was a long time ago. And, um, I remember the press meal was, I think it was like an, an egg and ham sandwich or something like that. It wasn't particularly pleasant. So anyway, you kind of say, all right, well, I'll, I'll, I've come a long way up to Grimsby. It's three hours north or whatever of, of Shropshire and Birmingham. So, okay. And everyone's tucking into the, 
this egg sandwich. And so we're, we're all about to go on the air. And you had um, the written... So for the press box, you had two levels. And the press boxes are in the middle of the stands, by the way, as well, in, in the UK for the most part. Radio and on air, live on air, were on the bottom row. And um, the top tier were written press. And for those unfamiliar of an English press box, for the most part, you are tucked in. You are, It's tight. Once you're in, you're in. You can't get out, really. Very different to these humongous booths that we have here in the United States. Um, so I'm, I'm there, and I'm about to, to get myself on the air. I can hear my producer saying, you know, 30 seconds and we're on. Um, and uh, I was opening. I was opening from Grimsby, um, talking about the game. I think it must have been a big game or something. I can't remember. And um, about five minutes prior to that, one of the newspaper reporters was complaining of a bit of a dodgy stomach and said he wasn't feeling very well. So we, I say we as in all the radio reporters, there's myself, there's um, another commercial radio station that was covering Shrewsbury, there's the BBC, um, there's the BBC radio station covering uh, Shrewsbury, uh, BBC station covering Grimsby, and there's, there's about four or five radio teams there doing the commentary. Um, and... All of a sudden, I uh, hear my producer saying, right, live in 10 seconds. And I look to my left, and there's the BBC radio station that are covering Grimsby live on the air. And all of a sudden, the press reporter, the newspaper reporter behind them, just decides to throw up and throws up absolutely everywhere. And the worst thing as well was the presenter <laughs> that was live on the air had a bald head. So the vomit was was smacking oh. up his head and going everywhere. And this poor chap was on the air as this was happening as well. And so there's bits of vomit flying everywhere as we're all coming on the air. And I, I've said to my wife several times and to others around um, around me that are close to me, if you can, can if you can keep your composure whilst that's happening, you're going to be okay. You know. <laughs> Absolutely, that is a tremendous story, and it's. It's funny, I think all of our listeners are familiar with ISDN lines and Comrexes, and it's funny, what one thing that the, the usual host, Logan, likes to ask his guest is uh, for broadcast horror stories. And I would say the couple that you just delivered <laughs> in this last answer certainly qualify for that. And it's interesting because, because you did talk about the fact that um, those towns, um, those communities do value their clubs so so much and, and and that's why it's so sad to, to see clubs like Macclesfield Town and and Barry um go under um because it does real leave a real loss within the communities over there and they and they feel it intensely. A real shame because just up the road you've got two tremendously well off football clubs in Manchester United and Manchester City who even if they just donated half a million dollars each it would not make a blind bit of difference to them from a financial point of view. Um, I do think there is a responsibility now that, that the Premier League have to start taking care of the Football League clubs because, as you quite rightly said, they are the heart and soul of, of many communities across the United Kingdom. Um, and it's a shame because both Bury and, and Macclesfield are stadiums I've been to, the teams that I've, I've covered in the past, and, you know, um, you, you could tell that they were they were hanging on by a thread um, from a financial point of view, even then. So I can't imagine how the whole situation that we're, we're living in at the moment has, has affected them. Um, you know, obviously, it's 
it, it's really, really put them in, in dire straits. And, um, you know, you can only hope that the, you know, the, the rebranded iteration of them and, and the new football club um, gets to become a football league team again and, and, and gets to, to where they were. You know, I mean, we saw something a long time ago, didn't we, which was different circumstances, of course, but AFC Wimbledon, you know, when they um, were, were bought out and, and were sort of franchised, if you will, um, and, and made MK Dons and, and the actual um, heart of the supporters group were saying, well, this isn't our team. MK Dons aren't our team. We're, we're AFC Wimbledon fans. And they went down to the, the 10th tier of English football. They were watching semi-professional football, but they were these semi-pro players were getting five or 6,000 people a game watching, <laughs> watching them in a park, you know, and it, it just shows how much it means, you know, football and especially at that level. It, it means so much. Um, and like I said, it's, it's the one thing that I do miss. I think the best way to describe it perhaps to the listener here would be, it's almost like um, collegiate sports here, you know, that there seems to be a, a belonging to to certain schools here. And, and forgive me, if I'm wrong in saying that and, and my foreign naivety, but I, I've been to, you know, a handful of collegiate sports events now and, and um, there seems to be that same pride because it's all about the community. It's all about the school. Um, you know, imagine that in the UK at a third and fourth level and it being all about that town. You know, it's it, it's tremendous and, um, you know, it, it, it's good to see because c- communities are starting to grow now in, 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 in soccer on this side of the, the pond as well and, and it's only good to see, you know. But, yeah, I mean, look, in my opinion, Bill, that the Premier League have got to step in now and try and help because the Football League are, um, no doubt they have issues. And today we're hearing about this new Super League that could potentially, you know, be a be a real thing. Uh, I know UEFA aren't happy about it and um, don't want it, but FIFA may very well approve it. And um, it just all points to the dollar sign again. And it's a real shame because I think it's, what it's doing is it's it's taking football away from the football fan, um, you know, and, and I understand from a revenue point of view, at the end of the day, that these are businesses, they have to make revenue. I understand that. But I think there's probably a better way to go about it. And I don't know what that is. I, I'm, I'm not smart enough to be making those decisions. But, um, you know, I, I do wonder what it means, um, you know, for the Premier League and, and, and for the Football League as a, as a whole long term. You know, I, I don't know if, you know, teams like Manchester City and Liverpool and Manchester United thought they'd outgrown the Premier League. I have no idea, but um, it, it does make me worried moving forward as to, to what English football is going to look like. You have a really tremendous voice, just naturally good voice. Um, as you were developing as a broadcaster, how long did it take you to, to really find that, to find the voice you have right now? And, and did, you have to, did you have to work on this? Um, on, the, on the voice you have um, as a broadcaster, or was that something that, that sort of just came to you naturally, um, you know, from the get-go? This is an interesting question, Bill, because I get asked this quite a lot. I don't ever remember doing any sort of real preparation in terms of my voice. I, I did one session at the BBC many, many years ago, um, but that was more um, because I had quite a, a thick Birmingham accent at that stage, which which isn't really going to work on on radio. Um, and um, so, so to answer the question, really, I I don't ever remember doing any sort of preparation. You know, I've heard of different things. I've spoken to different commentators, um, people like um, Ian Dark and, and Derek Ray and a few others who, who have said I think um, that they've tried one or two techniques in the past. Um, 
but I, I don't ever remember doing it. And it's not that I'm saying I'm, I'm not open to it because any way to better yourself, sure, absolutely, no problem. But um, it's never been something that I've really thought of and I don't ever remember really, um, you know, gargling the salt water or, or you know, um, having things that, that soften the, the glands in your throat or anything like that, really. You know, of course, I've taken stuff to to help a sore throat and everything. But um, in terms of actually shaping the voice and giving it a foundation, no, I've, I've never really done any, anything really to help that, to my knowledge, anyway, from what I can remember. Yeah, no, I've definitely heard of, of broadcasters trying to, to less, trying to make their accents a little less regional. But I would argue that the American soccer fan, in a lot of cases, wants a British broadcaster calling their football because to them it lends credibility and it lends an era of authenticity almost that that's I've seen a lot of that just in terms of um, criticism of American broadcasters and uh, an acceptance you talked about the Derek Rays and Ian Darks who are clearly fantastic broadcasters in their own right but something about a British voice doing soccer is just right yeah, and, and look, this is where probably you and I will disagree here, Bill, because in, in my opinion, um, and it's again, this is a subject that gets brought up a lot, and I speak about it a lot, and um, this is probably the first time I've ever spoken about it publicly. Um, I don't care what accent you have. I don't care how you sound. Just be good at what you do. Um, because right now, um, I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that, that equality needs to exist and I don't some, somebody asked me this a while a long time a few years ago about obviously working with my current partner Kendra D. St. Aubin um, a female co-commentator someone asked how you know how that was and everything and I said it's great there's, <laughs> there's no difference at all I, I don't care um, because in my opinion you should not be judged on your accent your gender your skin color whatever your sexuality you shouldn't be judged on anything the only thing you should be judged on is your ability as a broadcaster. So um, in terms of the, the British and American thing, I think here right now, actually, that there is more emphasis on American voices. Um, and, and I know that because, um, you know, there have been times when um, having a British voice, having a foreign sounding voice has held people back, including myself. Um, and it's, it's held some friends, it, it's held some friends behind uh, in the industry as well. And, um, and that's okay. That's fine. You know, as long as you're not, as long as the, the broadcaster themselves isn't judging because of the accent. I, I, I'm not going to say who or what the network is, Bill, but I was told a couple of years ago to not even bother trying at this particular network because I wasn't American. So um, I, I think it swings both ways because if you remember maybe 10 years ago, you may very well have gotten the opposite stance and people might have said, well, you're American, so don't even bother trying with us at the moment from a soccer point of view. So it, it swings both ways. But to, to me right now, um, that there are frustrations because I feel as though a lot of people aren't getting the opportunities they deserve because of their accents, whether they're English or Irish or American or what have you. you know. Um, and you just have to hope that, you know, at some stage the pendulum does swing and it comes back and, you know, um, people won't be judged on, on their accents or their skin colour or their gender or what have you, you know. And unfortunately, I think we're at a stage right now where, where a lot of that is being judged um, and, and people are or aren't getting opportunities um, for other reasons other than their, their talent. So, um, 
But in terms of the actual, um, you know, American versus English commentary thing, there's some tremendous North American commentators over over this side of the pond. And, um, you know, for example, I, um, I, I, you know, just because you have an English accent, it doesn't make you better, in my opinion. There are um, there are some wonderful American and Canadian commentators over here that I think are better than a lot of the English commentators over here. Um, you know, I, I like uh, I like Jake Zibin over in Portland. I think he's a, a, a really good commentator. I think he's got a really good feel and a grasp of the game. For those unfamiliar, I would I would suggest having a listen to his work. Um, you know, and um, there's other people like um, you know Pete Shard up in Vancouver. I think is a very established commentator as well. So um, it, it doesn't matter to me. And from the, the color commentary point of view, either as well. I mean, um, right now there's there's so many really good up and coming colour commentators in, in this part of the world. I, I would hope one day that, that you know, networks across the world will, will come over here and have a look. And I'm not suggesting that they poach them away, but, um, you know, th- th- there's, there's opportunities out there for everybody. I, I, and I just, I just hope that, that those opportunities are still there, regardless of, of accents and, and gender and skin colour, you know. So it's, um, it's, it's an interesting time for sure. But, um, you know, as I said, there's, there's some real talent over here in North America. There really is. Yeah, I couldn't agree more about the the need for equality and diversity when it comes to the broadcasting opportunities. And I think it is going to be one of those things where people will just get used to it over time. And, you know, maybe in a period of years, it won't be a thing. Um, Whatever accent you have and whatever experience you have, if you're good at at what you're doing, then, then hopefully that should be enough. You yeah, came over and, and first broadcast soccer in the in the U.S. in 2011 when you were the voice of Sporting KC. Um, in your eyes, how has MLS grown and changed since you first came in? <laughs> how long have we got, Bill? <laughs> um, what do you need? Oh, well, all right, we'll strap in here then. Um, I remember first coming over in 2011 um, and um, – quick story about that I guess before because um I was at the BBC at the time and and, and was really enjoying it and um had what what many would consider a pathway forward I think into the BBC um and out of nowhere and I mean absolutely nowhere Christmas Eve 2010 I was sitting in front of the fire with the cat and doing some research for a, a boxing day game and I got an email from San Jose Earthquakes saying, we like your stuff. We've heard your stuff. Um, we're in need of an announcer. Would you would you consider that? Um, and so straight away, I was like, oh, wow. You know, I'm, at, at this time, I'm 21, by the way. You know, I was thinking, wow, you know, <laughs> that's, that's quite, a, quite a step, you know. Um, but immediately I fancied it. Immediately I thought, yeah, you know, all right, we'll, we'll explore this at the very least, you know, because I obviously at that stage, David Beckham had moved over to the US and, and there, was a, um, there was a few more Major League Soccer clips that were being shown in the UK. And I remember watching a, uh, a Seattle Sounders playoff game. Um, it, might have been, it might have even been MLS Cup final, actually, now that I think about it. But either way, I remember seeing Edson Buddle score a, a beautiful goal of volley from 35 40 yards out at Seattle um and seeing the crowd and, and, and seeing the spectacle that that was Major League Soccer and thought to myself wow that, that looks like it's really coming on in the U.S. you know maybe I'll go and do that someday you know fast forward several years later and, and then I get this this email and um 
you know, straight away spoke to the family and, and spoke to my my girlfriend at the time, and, and and we kind of thought, yeah, you know, this might make sense to go and do this. It was met with utter distest, uh, utter detest rather than um, more than anything um, by the people at the BBC um, who wanted me to stay along and and not do anything, um, and uh, you know. They, they they planted some doubt in my mind. Let's let's say that you know I really thought yeah maybe I should just stay at the BBC you know, um, and anyway so conversations continued for a you know a week or so maybe two or three weeks, and then um, the the chap running the production at San Jose said to me yeah you know look unfortunately we're not going to be able to do this this year because we don't think we'll get your visa done in time. So I remember saying yeah okay no problem at all you know um, I understand but you know I'd like to to perhaps continue the conversation at some stage. And I remember speaking to Arlo White at the time, who was the voice of the Seattle Sounders and, and, and was asking him all these different things about the league and, and what have you. And, and not that I needed selling, but he certainly sold it to me, you know? And so I owe Arlo a tremendous uh, amount of gratitude there, you know? Um, but um, anyway, so that fell apart. And, and um, I emailed them back a few days later saying, you know, just, just wondering where you got my contact information from because it's just completely random to my knowledge, and I just want to say thanks to whoever passed on my my information. And eventually, I was um, I was guided to a chap called Larry Tuscornia, who who works at Major League Soccer and, and was the VP of Broadcasting at the time. Um, still is, to my knowledge. And um, uh, I, I emailed him, said thanks very much. You know, really appreciate it. Things haven't worked out, maybe at some stage in the future. And he replied with, uh, you know, a couple of pleasantries and said, have you tried anybody in Kansas City? And, and at this stage, Bill, I was, I was okay. I'd accepted, like, okay, fine, I'll stay in England and I'll continue to develop. Maybe in the future that's something I can do. I wasn't necessarily looking for a move. And um, I responded to Larry, Larry, where on earth is Kansas City? I had absolutely, <laughs> absolutely no idea. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I was again guided to, to one or two individuals over there and um, uh, thought nothing much of it really because, uh, you know, I waited a day or two and nothing came back. And I thought, OK, well, that's fine. No problem. I'll, I'll carry on on the path that I'm on. Um, little did I know that the producer at that time was actually showing my my real, um, my radio reel. I hadn't done much television at that stage. Uh, I'd done a couple of World Feed games here and there, but nothing major. Um and um, they were they were putting a proposal together, and I got an email two or three days later. I woke up to an email saying we're, we're very interested in bringing you over. Um, and from what was it? It was from the the initial response that I got from the producer. Six weeks later, I was in Los Angeles doing my first game. It was a very quick turnaround. Wow, sounds um, like it. Yeah, and, and bear in mind, as I said, I'm 21 at this stage as well. So it was a big life change as well. And I kind of thought to myself at that stage, I thought, let's just go for it. Because I only did a one-year contract as well. I thought, let's just go for it. And if worst comes to worst, I've gone out there. I've gotten some television experience that I can now bring back to the UK. And what happened was I fell in love with Major League Soccer and Kansas City and the whole idea of, of football in, in North America. Um Helped that I lived in a, a great place. Kansas City is a extremely underrated place. Um, very welcoming, um, wonderful life there. I was living in a in a house with three of the chaps that that worked for the club at that time. Uh, and as I said, I was twenty one and I was having the time of my life. It was great. 
going out to the pub most nights and meeting new people, seeing a new way of life and travelling around, seeing all these amazing cities. Because if you remember in that season, Bill, 2011, the first 10 games for Kansas City were on the road because the stadium wasn't ready. So here I am coming from the UK, a fresh-faced 21-year-old, not having a clue about anything, really. I had no idea. What, what, what's social security? What do you mean? You know, I had no idea about these things because it's so different in the UK. Um, unfortunately, I, I had a, a decent amount of help from a few individuals with that. Um, otherwise, I might have been in a bit of trouble. But, um, you know, uh, I, I then um, had a tremendous opportunity to go and, and travel to Seattle and Los Angeles, Philadelphia, New York and Toronto and all these amazing cities that when was I ever going to go and visit these places? You know, it, it was um, it was a tremendously eye opening experience. And after a couple of months, I thought to myself, yeah, I, I'm really invested in this. I really am enjoying this. And I'd already I'd already made my mind up that if a contract offer came to remain at the club, I was probably going to do it. Um, and um and so we did, you know, we got to the end of the season and, and the club offered me a three-year deal. And, uh, you know, we ended up ended up staying there for four very happy years. It was amazing. And, um, you know, uh, the, the, the stadium was when it really changed for Kansas City because I'll, I'll never forget, Bill, when I first got there, um, I was walking around an outdoor shopping mall, which is called the, the Country Club Plaza in Kansas City. And, you know, the club had rebranded, remember, that they, they were no longer the Wizards, they were sporting. and um, I was walking around and I had a, a little um, polo T-shirt on and I had the, the crest on, on my chest. Uh, I was walking out of a shop somewhere and, and, and someone, um, someone said, oh, what's, what's that? Pointing to the, 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 um, the badge. And I said, oh, it, it's sporting. It's the, the soccer team here. And there's a, an indoor soccer team in Kansas City called the Comets. The Kansas City Comets, they're called. And I said, oh, it's, it's the, the, the soccer team here. It's sporting. And the person said, oh, you mean like the comets? And I, I, <laughs> a little bit of me died inside there. And I was like, no, it's, <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's, it's, it's outdoor. It's professional soccer. Not, there's nothing. I say that with all due respect to the comets, but it was very different. And, and the stadium wasn't ready. And it was very unknown. And um, it, it just, I remember thinking to myself at that stage, that was early. That was March, April. So I thought, oh, dear me, maybe I've made the wrong decision here. but. Um, it, it grew so quickly in Kansas City. The stadium played its part, no doubt, because it, it and, and I say this to every franchise that comes into the league. Yes, it's okay to go and play in these temporary stadiums and facilities and whatnot. They do the job, no doubt. But when you have your own home, you have an identity in your market. And that's really what happened with Sporting Kansas City is when they got the stadium, they the, the opinion did shift in, in the, the normal situation in Kansas City in the normal full process of soccer in general, it went from minor league to major league very quickly because of the stadium and because of the fans inside it and the atmosphere that they generated, you know. Um, and then, of course, they were successful. We were very, very fortunate. We had a stupendous marketing team as well who pushed and pushed and pushed. And everywhere you looked, there was Sporting Kansas City all over the place. We were also graced with the fact that the, the Royals, the baseball team and the Chiefs, the NFL team, were both horrendous at that stage as well and Kansas City was crying out for something new so Sporting Casey became that new thing and as I said that was then accompanied by success and consistent playoff runs 
winning the Open Cup in 2012 was was huge for the club as well. And then in 2013, when they won the whole thing, um, you know, it, it was amazing. It was an incredible experience. I've still got my ring. You know, it, it's um, it, it's a wonderful experience to win MLS with with a franchise. You know, and um, we had a party then. Let me tell you, it was good fun. Um, and um, I, I remember just just thinking to myself in 2014, my last year with a franchise, remembering where it had come from. And hearing similar stories about other franchises around the league and seeing how much it had grown. Um, and it's a, a period that I'll always look back on and be very proud of because I was a part of that, you know. And um, every time I go back to Kansas City, um, you know, I, I, I go back quite often because my wife's family are from there. Um, and, and I still see Sporting KC tremendously relevant. Um, it always makes me feel very proud. Um, but the, the thing that really changed for me there, Bill, was was that in the second year when I when I came back to Kansas City, uh, I met my wife, uh, and that's when everything really changed for me because I I had only ever really thought about the US as sort of um, a miniature escapade, if you will, in this what I'm hoping to be a a big story for myself, um, and it all changed then when I met Stacy and. Um, you know, that's when I, I really fell in love and started thinking about America long term. Um, and, you know, we've never looked back since, you know, it, it's, it's wonderful. We're both, um, both extremely happy here in, in the Twin Cities. But um, to answer your original question, apologies, I've, I've gone on all over the place there, haven't I? Um, in terms of the growth of Major League Soccer, it, it's unrecognisable from where it was. If you think about, you know, Remember the days when DC United played at RFK Stadium and you'd walk into the broadcast booth and there'd be a hornet's nest in the corner and there'd legitimately be a raccoon walking around, you know, just nicking the, <laughs> the press meals and stuff, you know. It, it, it's, and now you look at the stadium, Audi Field is lovely. You look at Allianz Field, what we have here in Minnesota. I've mentioned Sporting Park already, Children's Mercy Park nowadays. Um, and, and just... Just the facilities themselves uh, have taken the league to a new level, but the quality of the players that are coming here now have completely changed from when I first came here. Um, and what, what's been quite interesting to see has been the reputation of the league not only grow internally in the US and, and Canada, but externally across the world as well. Um, after I had left Kansas City, after I was pushed, I ended up um, I ended up going back to the UK and. Um, a few months of returning, um, a few months since returning to the to the UK, the rights for Major League Soccer were rather spontaneously picked up by Sky Sports in the UK, which is the, the major network in the UK, and they asked me to do the to do the league for them. Um, and it was ran by the production company IMG, who, who I have a lot of time for, still work with them today. Um, and um, that in itself for me showed how, how much the league was growing. The fact that there was a global broadcast deal for Major League Soccer, where it wasn't 10 years prior to that, you were struggling to get regional television deals, you know? So um, it, it just continues on this tremendous trajectory, Bill. And, and it's, you know, I, I always speak to people about it when they ask, you know, what, what is it like over here? And I said, it's, it's the right time to be over here now. You know, gone are the days of, of the aging veterans coming over here to have a last payday. You know, the, the, the aging players that come here now, um, you know, are players that can still play in Europe. But because the message has spread across the world that this is a good league and the facilities are great, you can have a good life here as well, um, it's made it that much more attractive. And there's an, there's an abundance of other reasons as to why this league is attractive. But 
Um, the standard of play is getting better. The quality of players, not just the foreigners, but the Americans as well, is getting so much better. Um, it's now getting the attention that it has deserved for a long time. And that's only going to get bigger and better. You know, you, you talked about, um, and I don't want to go back down this rabbit hole of, of, of being British and America calling, calling soccer, but this is a craft of broadcasting podcasts. So how do you balance um, using British terminology for, for football um, with, with uh, American soccer fans? Um, are, are there certain phrases or terms that you make sure to, to avoid using or that you try to almost Americanize? What, what do you, where do you fall on the spectrum of um, incorporating um, British uh, football jargon, for lack of a better term, into, into your broadcasts here in America? Yeah, there's obviously certain phrases in the UK that are used that wouldn't be familiar to the audience that we have here and vice versa. But I'll be totally honest with you, Bill. It's not something I spend uh, a lot of time thinking about. I broadcast to our audience here in the US as I would if I was broadcasting to a UK audience because I think the knowledge is here now. I think um, the, uh, the, the audience here are fully aware of, of um, little phrases that might be used elsewhere in the world. Now, you know, the, one thing, again, we talk of growth, you know, the, the audience continues to grow here as well, not only in terms of numbers, but in terms of knowledge of the game. Um, so I, I don't, it's not something I spend a, a great deal of time thinking about, you know, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for soccer fans in this country because they've had to, to go through hell and high water to get to where we are now. You know, I, I've heard horror stories of, not being able to watch live soccer on, on television here, you know, and um, all sorts of, of difficulties trying to sell the sport, you know. And and here we are now where it's, you know, it, it's not, um, obviously it's not at the peak of everyone's mind at the moment when you think of, of generic sports in this country, but it's come a long, long way. So my, my biggest thing when I'm when I'm broadcasting to an audience in this country and in the UK as well, but but particularly here with the way that it's growing is my first thought is um, and, and on the mindset, my first thought is let's be respectful to the audience. Um, in terms of sort of transitioning slightly into styles and whatnot, I, um, I, I always took some advice from a couple of, of well-known commentators um, and I, I couldn't agree with it more. Um, you have to imagine that you're in someone's living room because essentially you are. When you're on their television, especially with the pandemic right now as well, there's not a lot of people going out to bars and watching games. Um, you're in someone's living room. You're a guest in their house, so be a good guest. Don't don't be disrespectful. Um, and, and I won't go into the stats and that kind of stuff. I'm sure we'll talk about that later on. But um, just purely in terms of being respectful, um, I don't want to be disrespectful to our audience here by, in inverted commas, dumbing down an American soccer broadcast because I think that's disrespectful. I will always do a football commentary in the US um, as I would do in the UK. No, that, that's great, and I think that that's all the American soccer fan wants is to be is to be treated like they know what they're watching because, generally speaking, they do. Um, what has it been like? You, you referenced broadcasting during a pandemic. What has it been like this season? You know, trying to call games. Different, difficult. <laughs> Um, not your regular run of the mill, safe to say. Um, 
There's been a lot more off-monitor, off-tube commentaries, which is understandable, and which is also something that's not new in soccer broadcasting either. So to my knowledge, I, I believe after several conversations with other announcers um, in, in, the, in this country, I, I believe it's new for a lot of other sports. But for, for football, for soccer in this country and the rest of the world, it's not really because of the international um, feel of it and because of the, the complications doing an international broadcast give you. Um, so we, we've put together, our producer Morgan Lubin and, and the crew around him have put together a, a little um, makeshift studio, if you will, from Allianz Field, from the, the stadium club, the second level on uh, on Allianz Field's uh, wonderful and glorious and gorgeous facilities. It, it is, uh, I'm lucky, Bill, I've been in a lot of stadiums. Uh, Allianz Field is up there with one of the best in terms of facilities and how it looks. It's, it's absolutely immaculate. It's a real um, gem, isn't it? Let's hope we can get people back in soon, you know, because it's a shame that it's it's sitting there without any people in it, you know, and once it's safe, I hope people can can return and, and do so safely. Um, but we're fortunate that, you know, we, we get to call that place home. We get to call that place our, our place of work, you know, and um, we've been doing the, the off-monitor commentaries from our little studio and, and um, you know, what, what tends to happen is we're very fortunate that in the, the stadium club, the level that we're broadcasting the away games from, we have a humongous monitor behind us. And because of the facilities that we have at the stadium, it's allowed us to put a few things on that monitor. So, for example, if we're talking about uh, Kevin Molino, um, myself and Kindred East St. Auburn are either side of this gargantuan monitor and we can show a clip of Molino. If, if it's been fed down the line and we have it for an away game, we, we can show it. Um, we can throw stats up there. We can throw um, all sorts of different things up there, you know, and, and it's been really helpful um, all whilst we're looking at the camera in front of us. But once we're done with the pre-half and post and whatnot, once we're done with the on-camera duties, we then turn around and we call the game off said monitor. Um, and it's fine. It's okay. Um, we've had a little issue from time to time this year with, with what we've been able to, to receive from, from the feed that we're getting. Um, once or twice this year, I remember earlier on this year, actually, we were doing a game at Columbus Crew and the home field production truck caught on fire, um, meaning that we weren't getting a feed. Wow. <laughs> we had no feed at all. And so we, we just got done with our pregame show and my producer, Morgan, says uh, down my ear, I need you to get back in front of the camera because we've lost the feed. We have no feed. Um, a little more um, excitable at that time. He was a little bit uh, more erratic, let's let's say. But um, as one would be when you find out the home production truck is on fire. Um, yeah, so we were told to film the camera and film. <laughs> uh, but I do love that live um, intensity. I love that anything can go wrong on live television and you've got to be the person in front of camera to make it seem that everything's okay. Um, but, cha- you know, obviously calling the game off monitor comes with its challenges for sure. You are at the mercy of, of camera one and whatever the director of the opposing feed wants to show. So if the opposing commentary team are talking about a certain player um, and all of a sudden there's a one shot of that player that appears to the viewers in the Twin Cities area in the the Fox Sports North region, um, then we've got to start talking about that player. (laughs) We have no choice because that's what popped up. You know, we're not controlling any of the the, the match day, the the commentary production. We're controlling none of it. Um, 
So it, it can be challenging for sure. But Kendra and I were fortunate because it, it wasn't new to us because Kendra had obviously called the Women's World Cup um, twice now. And, and she, for the most part, she'd done games off the monitor. I've been doing world feeds for a long time. And for the most part, they'll come off a monitor as well. So um, it, it wasn't too big of um, of an issue. But it doesn't mean it's issue free. <laughs> Every commentator will tell you, you would prefer to be on site. And then when we are on site here at Allianz Fields, it's just quite peculiar because there's nobody in the stadium. And we're helped with the fact that the crowd noise is pumped in and it's pumped into our cans, into our headset as well. So it does still feel as though you have a, an audience, you have a crowd there. Um, but it's, I think the best way to describe it is, is strange, as is 2020. You know, it's it's a reoccurring theme, isn't it? 2020 has been unbelievably strange. Um, Un- unprecedented, uh, the word that's often Yeah, used. Yeah, it's, 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 yes, that's probably the best way to describe it. it it's been um, very, very odd. And let's hope we don't have to do anything like this ever again moving forward. <laughs> is there any way that, that potentially this experience will make you a better broadcaster in the long run? I think so, because we've had to deal with issues that aren't regular issues. Um, I would say that it's probably been a nice little refresher, actually, because as I, as I insinuated earlier on, Bill, you know, yes, Kendra and I were, were used to calling games off monitor because of previous experiences, but we haven't done it for a while. So I, I think it, it it will have made us better broadcasters for sure. Um because there's, there's so many different ways of, of doing a game off a monitor compared to, to doing a game when you're on site. The little cues that you give each other as, as commentary partners and everything can, um, you know, if it's a home game, I, I know Kendra can ask our producer, can you get me a, a shot of Emmanuel Reynoso or whatever? Um, and, and it's done. But for the away games, as I've said a few times now, you just have to roll with it. You have to, to go with what you're given. So um, it makes it challenging. But it's a lot of fun, I will say. They are a lot of fun. And um, that's the one thing which I think a lot of people seem to forget a lot of the time is that what we do, what we get paid for, it is a lot of fun. It can be stressful at times, no doubt, but it is a lot of fun. And as I've said once or twice already, Bill, I love that that thrill of live television. Love radio as well. I miss radio. I miss doing radio a lot. And I always enjoy it whenever we had to pop over to do the radio stuff. But in terms of live television... I love the thrill. And and even when people are panicking in, in my ear and, and effing and blinding and screaming and all sorts, and it's complete anarchy and chaos, I love the fact that I'm the person in front of camera who has to act like there's absolutely nothing wrong. Um, the high wire act. Yeah, I, I quite... I, I, I guess I'm... Uh, it's quite sickening that I enjoy it, but I do actually. <laughs> it's, um, it, it, it's it's your it's your adrenaline junkie. It is. Uh, it is. I, I wouldn't want to throw myself on an airplane or anything, you know. But that's yes. I, I suspect you're right there. That's my version of adrenaline. Yes. <laughs> I'd be remiss as an Aston Villa fan if I didn't also ask you um, about the team's um, four wins and in, in four starts uh, to this uh, to this season. You once broadcast for them in the 2015-2016 season. Um, you and I have watched Aston Villa matches before um, in, in Minneapolis. And so just what are your thoughts on, on the way they've started this campaign? It's been exemplary, hasn't it? It's been really, really good. Um, when you think about where they were not three or four months ago, 
on the very cusp of relegation, right on the edge of uncertainty, um, to think about where the team is now and the amount of money that's been spent. And, and it's all credit to the ownership group who said they were going to do this and, and they've done it. They followed through. Dean Smith did, deserves so much credit as well. Um, you know, there were people saying he was out of his depth in the Premier League. There were people suggesting that, that he, he he lost the locker room and, and uh, all sorts of different things, you know, and, and he deserves so much credit for what he's done. Jack Grealish is, for me, the most exciting young English talent at the moment. Um, I'll have that debate with, with anybody across the world. Um, he's so different to anything that the England national team have got at the moment. Um, there are shades of, of, uh, of George Best and Paul Gascoigne, um, in his game, um, and I think he's now been complimented very, very well by the acquisition of Ross Barkley as well, because there's not tremendous emphasis on Grealish doing absolutely everything. That was the case last year. He seemed to be the only player that would would be able to to give Aston Villa a spark, and there was a reason why he was the most fouled player in the Premier League last year, because the, the aim for most teams was to stop Jack Grealish. If you stop Jack Grealish, you stop Aston Villa. Now that's not the case, and attention has been turned elsewhere on, on a lot of other players. And it's given Jack Grealish a lot more space to manoeuvre. Um, the win against Leicester the other day was was very, very welcome. And Ross Barkley, again, with two goals in two games. Now, um, the, the victory over Liverpool was was ludicrous, wasn't it? 7-2. Um, I, I, I was speaking to my dad about it. And I, I, don't, I don't ever remember a victory as compelling as that ever as an Aston Villa fan. And it'll go down in our history. It really will. And that will forever be etched in the history of the top flight of English football, you know. And we are a historic club. Aston Villa have an abundance of it. But when you create history in the modern era, um, there seems to be something extra about it. Um, And I don't know why that is at the moment. But Maybe it's because of the glitz and glamour of the Premier League. I'm not entirely sure. But, um, yeah, it it was bizarre. And... um, what it was, was it was a statement for sure. And I, I agree with an assessment that I saw a while ago suggesting that Villa were very good going forward, but also Liverpool were absolutely torrid defensively that day. And I, and I agree with that completely. But if a team are bad defensively, you still have to take advantage of those opportunities that are presented to you. And my word, they did that day. So um, my hopes are that Aston Villa still just stay in the Premier League. Let's just be realistic. It's been a very good start. Um, the best in some time, to my knowledge. Um, but let's also remember, we are one year, or well, let's face it, three months removed from escaping relegation and surviving by the skin of our teeth. Um, if you stay in the Premier League, we know how much it's worth financially. And with the television deals due up in another couple of years, you also have to understand the amount that staying in the Premier League really means to teams at the moment. Um, so stay in the Premier League. If we finish 17th again, I'll be okay with it. Perhaps not finishing as closely as it did last year. <laughs> not sure it'll do my nerves or stress any good. Um, but I think if we stay up, then I'll be happy. And then we build again. And, and we build this this wonderful football club. Um, and and we, we make it what it's supposed to be and build it to where it's supposed to be, which, in my opinion, is, is a, a consistent challenger for the top six in the Premier League. Um, and if it takes time to do that, so be it. Let's slowly build. There's no need to, to rush. Um, but having said that, the start of the season 
it does make you wonder, doesn't it? It really, really does. So we'll wait and see. But um, if we finish 17th again, I'll be delighted, Bill. If we do any more, I'll be ecstatic. Uh, Calum, if any listeners wanted to get in touch with you, uh, what would the best way for them to do that be? Um, the best way would be probably on social media. Um, I would say uh, just drop me a note. Um, I'm at calwilliamscom on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, uh, yeah, that would be the best way to get in touch with me for sure. I, I always open if there's young broadcasters, aspiring broadcasters wanting any sort of advice, more than happy to help and, and will help when when I can. It's a very busy time at the moment, um, but we'll, we'll certainly um, we'll certainly help because I I know how difficult it is to not only get into this industry but be consistently remaining in it as well. It's it's not easy, so I'm I'm more than happy to help out where I can. Absolutely, absolutely. Once again, we've been visiting with Minnesota United commentator Callum Williams from Fox Sports North. Callum, thanks for, so much for coming on the pod today and up the villa. Up the villa. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of com. Also, please follow me on your favorite social media outlet. And remember that Apple podcast reviews, emails, social media feedback, or any other kind of honest feedback for that matter is greatly appreciated and helps me make the show better. Finally, please reach out to both the guests of the show and the guest host for that matter, both Callum Williams and Bill Hupp. I am greatly appreciative of them for helping me to keep this podcast going through uh, my difficult circumstances. So thanks to both of them, and please reach out to them to let them know how much you appreciate it. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.